Last uh, week we began a two-part series on the structure and shape of the book of Psalms as a whole. And we read from Psalm 48, which speaks of surveying Zion in order to understand important lessons about God himself. And so we'll read that same text this morning. Psalm 48, walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, and go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the amazing architecture of your word. Not only do its verses and passages speak truth, but its arrangement reveals your beauty and order. Help us this morning to grow in our ability to drink deeply from your word and delight in all of its features. Amen. Amen. may be seated. So last week, we did our 30,000-foot flyover of the entire book of Psalms. We analyzed various details of its structure, beginning with the fact that the book of Psalms is organized as five books, just like the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five five books of the Bible. And we took note that this kind of mirrored structure, five books of the law, five books of Psalms, is meant to draw a connection between God's law and God's praise, that we don't understand God's law rightly until it leads us into worship and praise. Both the content of the Psalms and its organization and structure teach us important lessons about God himself. And as we did our flyover, we observed certain details about each of the books, and we noted how its authorship details, as well as the content within the Psalms themselves, when we analyze these things, we see that the five-book structure of the book of Psalms also follows five parts of the redemptive covenantal history of the nation of Israel. We noted this in particularly by looking at the authorship of David, and we saw how in the first book, all of the Psalms are authored by David, reflecting a kingdom under a good king, safe and secure from from her enemies. And then in book two, it's half David and half others, reflecting at least the, the emerging of the divided kingdom. And book three, Just one Psalm of David, leaving that safe, secure time and season in the distant past and reflecting a a time when when the enemies of God's people were coming right into the land, right into the temple itself and bringing destruction. Book four, almost all anonymous Psalms, reflecting a people in captivity with no name, no association with Yahweh, the God of Israel, outside of the promised land. And then book five, a people returning back into the land filled with thanksgiving, filled with praises. When we connected all of those dots, we saw how the structure speaks of the covenantal history of God's people. We also took note of uh, the authorship details, particularly in how the authorship of David reflects the importance of David to the book of Psalms and to the covenantal history of Israel. We saw that the first book was all David and then half David and then only one and then anonymous. And then as we got to the very end of the book of Psalms, we find another collection of the Psalms of David right before that pinnacle, that finale of the final five hallelujah psalms. And we noted that these authorship details create this trajectory, that we begin with the promise of David, David, the, the King David in the kingdom, 
solid and secure, and then losing touch, losing sight, but then it coming back again. And that that trajectory ultimately points to God's promise and covenant to David, namely that he would have a son. And that son, his son, would sit at the right hand of God and reign over his enemies forever. Of course, we know that that trajectory ultimately leads to the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who did conquer death, the one who did rise from the dead, who did ascend, and who is seated at the right hand of the Father. These details just showed us how the architecture and arrangement of the book as a whole speaks so vividly of God's purposes and faithfulness to his people to establish his covenant and to fulfill his covenant. We talked about how the structures of the book of Psalms, the structures of the very city of Zion, the structures of the temple, that these things are meant to convey important information about God himself. But it can be very challenging to see structural details and patterns in a book as long as the book of Psalms. There's 150 songs in there. So it can be quite difficult to, to see those patterns. We can lose the forest for the trees. And so it's important to do these uh, sketches, these overviews of structure. And, and we did that last time from our 30,000 foot view. And this week, I want to zoom down into the details and examine the terrain so that we might become familiar with, with those boundaries and edges and types and, and various kinds and features of the landscape. If you've ever moved to a new city, we're about to move in a couple of weeks, and when you move to a new place, you're not really familiar with it. You, you have to start to get a map in your head, right? So, so you learn that when you drive down Penny Road and you see that big silo, that that's, that's Blaney Frank, and if you go down there, it'll connect to 1010, and you, you have to get little spots and and connections and intersections and to figure out. And until you do, you don't really feel quite at home. Until you've got that mental map in your head, you're feeling a little bit foreign. But then once you gain that familiarity, when you know those landscapes, when you know those features, when you know what's coming around the bend, you feel at home. And that's what I want for us to feel with the book of Psalms. I want us to feel at home in the book of Psalms, that these are our songs, that we understand what God is speaking to us about himself through this book. So as, to, as, we, as today, as we look at the landscape, we zoom down and we consider the valleys and the trees and the hills and the waters and we examine these various kinds of features, we're going to continue to become more acquainted with this book. So we're going to look at the various types of psalms this morning. And there are basically five types of psalms. There are psalms of praise, there are psalms of lament, there are psalms of thanksgiving, there are psalms of trust, and of course there are imprecatory psalms. Now, when we classify psalms like this and put them into containers, uh, these are not hard and fast containers. Categories like this can be very helpful for us to organize and gain familiarity, and that's what we're gonna use them for. But of course, keep in mind, that not every psalm falls neatly into one of these categories, and, and many psalms contain elements of many categories. So don't, don't feel like this is um, a, a modern Baconian classification of everything we could possibly classify, but rather uh, a helpful aid for us to be familiar with this book. And so let's begin with the first kind of terrain, the, the psalms of praise. The psalms of praise. 
mentioned that the book of Psalms is, gets its name from the Hebrew word tehillim, which simply means praises or songs of praise. And so given the fact that the entire book is titled Praises, we can glean that a praise psalm is pretty central to the book of Psalms. This is the, the pinnacle. This is the highlands of the book of Psalms. And we noted that not last week when we looked at the structure, the five book structure, that not only do you have those little labels, book one, book two, book three, book four, and book five, but you also have at those seams, the very last verses before moving into the next book, a real high note of praise, right? At the end of book one, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. Every book concludes with this high note of praise before transitioning into the next book. And then we also saw that the book itself, as you go from, uh, from the beginning to the end, that when we get to the end, there's that high note, that grand finale, five hallelujah psalms of praise. There's this sense in which um, the volume on praise just gets increased as you move through the book, uh, the, the book of Psalms. If you were to catalog the book of Psalms and just sort of label them and see their progression throughout uh, the, the entire book of Psalms, you'll, you'll find that there are four or so in the first book, another four in a second, in the second book, none at all in the third, where the enemies are coming in, you're, they're being destroyed, um, not many Psalms of praise there. And then we find nine in the fourth book, where, when they're in captivity. We noted last week how kind of odd that is, while in captivity their praise was elevated. And of course, in book five, we find 13 Psalms of praise. And, and one of the things we can take away from this progression from, you know, we praise here when things are pretty good, but then we lose it as things get bad and then it peaks at the end, is that no matter what kinds of valleys we have in life, no matter what twists and turns the roads take, in the end, we end up with praise. In the end, we praise God. The shape and architecture, the arrangement of the Psalms of praise, they're meant to show us that Regardless of our circumstances, in the end, God turns all of it to his praise. And praise is a proper end, a proper end for our entire lives. One, uh, Psalm 147 speaks of this. What, Psalm 147, verse 1, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. God desires for us to praise him. That is the end for our creation, that we would praise and glorify our God. I don't know if you know this quote from C.S. Lewis. You probably do. It's, it's quoted quite often from his book on the Psalms. But he speaks of the fittingness of praise, the fittingness um, of worship this way. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but it completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care nothing care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with? 
The Scotch Catechism says that a man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, but we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify Him, God is inviting us to enjoy Him. And so these psalms of praise, they really are the highlands. They are the end, the telos, the purpose, the goal to bring us ultimately to the praise of, of God. So what makes a psalm of praise unique from other psalms? What makes it a psalm of praise? I think they're probably the easiest ones to identify because they just declare the glory of God. They express worship to God, like Psalm 29, perfect example. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. So they're fairly easy to identify when you find a psalm of praise, but there's kind of an interesting subdivision to take note of as you get to know uh, the, the praise psalms. You'll note as you find praise psalms that, that you have two subtypes of praise. You have declarative praise, the one we just read, Psalm 29 would be an example, and descriptive praise. So Psalm 113 has characteristics of both. It begins with declarative praise. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. And then it moves to, dis to descriptive praise. The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with princes of His people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Since praise is so basic and so fundamental to our worship, then it's, it's good to, to understand the details and the elements of what goes into praise. The James In James 5, 13, he, he says, If anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. If anyone is cheerful, let him sing praise, which is a command. So there's an imperative. If you find yourself at a moment where you are happy, things are going well, you owe God praise. It, it's not an option. It's an imperative. You have to do that. And so it would be good to know where can we go to find some, some source material for offering our praise to God. The Psalms, are, of course, are a great place to go, and the Psalms of praise are the perfect location. There are approximately 30 or so psalms of praise, again, classifying these things. Not all of them fall neatly, but there's about 30. And, and as I mentioned, they are weighted toward the end of the book. So if you wanted to find psalms of praise in particular, um, you could look to book four, particularly Psalms 93 through 100. There's a, a strong grouping of psalms of praise there. And as you turn to book five, Psalms 111 through 117, lots of strong uh, psalms of praise. And of course, you can just turn right to the end, right? Just go right to the, that, those last five chapters. You find the five hallelujah psalms, psalms of praise. The progression of the book of Psalms infallibly moves us toward praise. That's reassuring. That is hopeful. God is going to bring us there, ultimately, despite the twists and turns. But I think if the book of Psalms consisted only of psalms of praise, that we, in our weakness, in our frailty, might actually get discouraged. Because while we might 
really like to just hang out in the heights, stay in the highlands, stay in that point of the points of praise, that is not our daily experience, is it? We also have to go through the valleys. We find times in our life when we, are far, we far, feel far more like crying than we do celebrating. And of course, the Psalms are absolutely no stranger to the sufferings in life. And so that brings us to the next kind of psalm, the Psalms of Lament. A lament is simply a cry, a plea, or even a complaint. I don't know if you've ever noticed this aspect of the Psalms, but when you read them, it's kind of difficult to pick out exactly what was going on behind the scenes, like, where does this fall? Is this, is this psalm about that story or this story? There? They tend actually to be more generalized than specific. Psalm 151 is a little different in that the inscription in it says this is a psalm of David about when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Um, but even if you then just read the psalm itself and you didn't note the inscription, you could connect the dots, but the, the, the content of the psalm itself wouldn't give you those details. The psalms are somewhat abstracted from their specific context in history. And I think God did that on purpose. So that when we read the Psalms, we can connect to those. If it was so specific to an event, we might just say, oh, that was his situation. Interesting to learn from it. But no, these Psalms are meant to be picked up and sung by God's people, by his church in every era, no matter what the circumstances, whether we're experiencing victory or defeat whether we are celebrating in joy or whether we are crying out in pain and anguish. And so, we need to have these psalms that we can connect with as we go through all of the twists and turns of our life. And of course, the the laments in the book of Psalms uh, speak uh, cries for all manner of difficulties and struggles. We find various contexts for laments. We have uh, laments that cry out to God when they're suffering unjust persecution from enemies. We find psalms that cry out to God due to a, a, a personal affliction, a sickness, a prolonged illness. We find psalms of lament that cry out to God even when our suffering is the result of our own foolish decisions and sins. The psalms of lament, they are the songs of our struggles in life. And it's, it's really interesting how freely the psalmists offer their cries to God. How they cry out and plead to God. How they bring their complaints to God. They, they cry out loudly, Why, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Why is this happening? It's not supposed to be this way, God. So when you're sick, when you're suffering, when you get a curveball thrown your way, do you cry out to God in the same way that the, that the psalmists do? I don't think we typically do. I think if we cry out often, we might cry out wrongly, or we don't cry out the way the psalmists do. And I think there's a, several reasons why we might not be able to enter into or connect with the laments the way we ought to. I think one possibility um, is that we might think we are more theologically astute than the psalmists. Because we're reformed, right? We know God ordains everything. We know He's sovereign over everything. We know that He turns everything to good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. We are confident in our sovereign God. And so, if God did it on purpose for our good, why would we complain, right? Shouldn't we just sit and say, yep, that was for my good? 
God is sovereign. <laughs> he does ordain your trials. Indeed, he does. And he does intend them for your refining and for your good. But listen, in the moment, it still hurts. It still hurts. And God wants us to turn our cries of pain to him. That's his goal. That's what the psalmists do. They feel the pain and they cry out to God. And this pleases God. But there are some other errors we can, we can follow when we cry out to God. We could cry out to God, but in crying out to God, we bring our complaints in a way that seems to be blaming God. Why did you do this to me, God? How dare you do this to me, oh God? Charging God with wrongdoing. And that is never what we see the psalmist doing. They never charge God. They'll say, I'm confused about this. I don't like this. Please change this. But they never charge God with wrongdoing. God wants us to bring our complaints. God, I don't like what's going on right now. Help me. Help me understand. Strengthen me. But not charging him with wrongdoing. Some people don't want to cry out to God because they want to disconnect God from responsibility for what's happening to them. They have some bizarre, soft, modern notion of who God is. That, that God has to be so nice that he would never have anything to do with a suffering that came to me. And they disassociate God from their trials. They want to conceive of God as being just as much a victim of their pain as they are. Well, that is so wrong and short-sighted. If in a suffering you don't want to bring your complaint to God because you want to excuse him from having anything to do with it, treat him like you're, he's just your buddy who's got your back and accepts you no matter what, and so you don't want him to be involved in that suffering, what, if that's your God, then why ask him for help ever? If he's not helped you now, if he's not involved now, why would he help you in the future? Why ask him for deliverance later if he can't help you in what you're dealing with now? It's so short-sighted. No, God does ordain our sufferings, our trials, and our pains. And he means them for our good. And he will bring them to our, his praise. But in the moment, we look to him, we cry out to him, and we trust him. That's what he wants us to do with our laments. So when we cry out to God, we can ask him the questions, we can bring him our complaints, we can ask for relief, but we do this in anticipation of deliverance. Psalm uh, 50, for example, is a good, ex a good example. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Or Psalm 86, verse 6, Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. We need the laments in the book of Psalms. They need to reflect our actual experience. But here's a little detail that we might not like. Here's a lesson from the details that we might not like. The number of the types of Psalms, it's the laments that are the most frequent. Of all the kinds, they're mostly laments, which if we're going to derive a lesson from that, we are going to have to recognize that in this life, we will have trouble, like Jesus said. Right? Not too many people pin that Jesus verse up on their you know, <laughs> verse of the day. In this life, you will have trouble. Yes, Lord, I claim that promise. Not as, not, not as often. We, life can feel very long sometimes. Pains and distress, distresses can be, uh, can be deep. Disappointments, they are going to come. We are going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but God is going to be with us. He comforts us. And in the end, 
Jesus has told us he will be with us to the end of the age. He's not going to leave us or forsake us. But that doesn't mean we don't cry. It doesn't mean we don't bring him our troubles. No, we do. We bring them to him. We're going to need these psalms of lament because life does have pains, and fortunately it's easy to find them because they're all over the place. Um, in a pinch, if you're not sure where to go, just go right to the beginning. Um, after the first two psalms, which are kind of introductory, we have uh, five in a row of David that are psalms of lament. Psalm 3, he cries out because of foes. Psalm 4, he cries out because of distress. Psalm 5, he cries out because of, because of evildoers. Psalm 6, it's because of, of sickness. And Psalm 7, it's because of violent men. When we look at the frequency of these psalms, we would probably assume that books 1, 2, and 3 would contain the most laments, and you'd be right. That's where most of the laments are found. But of course, we noted that even in book 5, which is, is one of those high watermarks of thanksgiving and praise being restored, yet we still find psalms of lament like Psalm 137. Because until that last enemy, death, is put under Jesus' feet, until that day, when there'll be no more mourning, when there'll be no more death, when there'll be no more crying or pain, when every tear will be wiped away, until that day, we're still going to need the Psalms of Lament. God does turn our painful trials to good. Sometimes our painful trials last lifelong. Sometimes people have lifelong ailments and they're not going to be delivered from it in this life and so our relief comes in, in the, the next life. But more, than, more often than not, God does heal us from our sicknesses. God does deliver us from our distresses. He does rescue us from our enemies. And when those things happen, we owe God thanks. And so our third type of psalm we want to look at are the psalms of thanksgiving. The psalms of thanksgiving um, have similarities to both psalms of lament and psalms of praise. But the key characteristic that makes a psalm of thanksgiving is that whatever the trouble is that's referenced in the psalm, it's in the past. It's in the past. God has delivered the person from that distress, and the proper and fitting response, therefore, is thanks. Thanking God for that deliverance. Psalm 30 says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O oh Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O oh Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. We see the psalmist had some, some distress, and God had delivered him. Or Psalm 40, a great psalm of thanksgiving. Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Just think how many times in your life God has delivered you. How many troubles has he lifted you out? How many times have you gotten sick and recovered? How many times have you been tempted and resisted? How many times have you been tempted and not resisted and been forgiven? How many bullets have you dodged? How many narrow escapes? How many collisions avoided by inches? How many of these do you not even know? <laughs> because God was watching over you and you didn't even see that thing coming, but he rescued you. Considering how vast God's mercy is to us, 
Psalms of thanksgiving should be always in our hearts. We should have them ready all the time. And so it's good to know where, where to find these psalms. There are about 14 or so psalms of thanksgiving, um, though there are plenty more instances of thanksgiving within many psalms, but four that could really be classified this way, and as you would imagine, the majority of them are found in Book 5, um, with, with, a, with a couple in, in Book 4 as well. So if you need a psalm of thanksgiving, which we do because we owe God thanks all the time, look to mostly Book 5. So we've covered uh, the psalms of praise, the psalms of lament, the psalms of thanksgiving, and that brings me to, my, I think, my favorite kind of psalm. If it's okay to have a favorite, I think it probably is. But if you can have a favorite kind of psalm, then, then this fourth is, is my favorite, the psalms of trust, the psalms of trust. A psalm of trust is very similar to a psalm of lament. You might even get them confused or, um, or think one is the other. Like a lament, a psalm of trust expresses a current, ongoing distress. So you are sick. You are being oppressed by your enemies. You are in distress. But in, and so it's not like a psalm of thanksgiving, which it's already done. God already has delivered you. So you're in that moment and you're crying out to God in the midst of distress. But rather than the note, rather than the emphasis being on the cry or the complaint, how long, why, rather the tone becomes one of trust. In the very midst of your distress, you turn and you are trusting in God. Psalm 16, one of my favorite psalms, goes, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to Yahweh, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Yahweh is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I will bless Yahweh who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I've set Yahweh always before me because he's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. And of course, the most famous psalm of all, right? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lay down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The Psalms of trust, they, they give us so much hope. They so much confidence because while we're in pain, we are expressing our trust to God. When, when you go through a trial and in the midst of the trial, you, your faith is preserved and kept, even strengthened, how encouraging is that? We often fear, what would happen if I face some terrible trial? Will my faith hold? Well, when you go through it and you feel the pain and your faith holds and you praise Him in the midst, that is deeply reassuring. And so as we sing the Psalms of Trust, not only do they properly form and shape that kind of faith in, in, in Christ, but it actually 
creates that faith. It builds that faith. As we sing psalms of trust, we are laying up those things that we will need in those moments when we face trials and can turn to Him in trust. There are about a dozen or so psalms of trust, but again, they're... All throughout the book of Psalms, you find statements of trust and verses that, that express trust in God. But if you wanted to find some where they're, where they're most predominant is in the Psalms of Ascent. So those 15 Psalms right after Psalm 119, those are your, you're going to find at least four or so um, Psalms of Trust in that section. So you could look there to find Psalms of Trust. Well, this brings us to the last uh, of our types, the imprecatory Psalms. The imprecatory psalms. An imprecatory psalm is a psalm that calls down a curse. It comes from the Latin that is to curse. And so the imprecatory psalms, these are the ones that call down curses on God's enemies. There's about six psalms that are formally fit this type, um, among which are Psalm 35, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, which is the one that the apostles quote after Judas's betrayal, and they reference this psalm with respect to his terrible fate. I think, uh, by and large, it's the imprecatory psalms that are the ones that are most difficult for people to relate to or to know what to do with. I think some Christians make a terrible mistake in thinking that these are just not to be used. Um, Maybe they're in the Bible as examples of how not to pray or some nonsense like that. Um, I don't think I don't think that's the case, and I don't think the that you can isolate imprecatory psalms and say, oh well, that's just an, an artifact of the Old Testament somehow, because not only um, do we have these six imprecatory psalms, but imprecatory statements are sprinkled throughout all of the psalms. Ninety out of the 150 psalms have at least one verse that expresses some imprecatory wish, some wish for God to to judge and curse and destroy His enemies. And even if it was just in the Psalms that we had to contend with this, um, that we would still need to embrace this. But it's not just in the Psalms. It's also in the New Testament. Jesus quotes Psalm 109 in particular in John 15, speaking of, of Judas. Paul likewise quotes Psalm 109 and also Psalm 69. So if you have the New Testament authors quoting these imprecatory Psalms, we are going to have to embrace imprecatory statements. Not only this, we find imprecatory statements right there in our New Testament. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. That's a wish for their destruction. Or 1 Thessalonians 2, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last." 2 Timothy 4, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. 1 Corinthians 16, the end of the epistle. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. 
And of course, we're in the book of Revelation, right? The, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which expresses all sorts of imprecatory statements about the wrath that is going to be poured out in judgment upon God's enemies. So they're there. God means them to be there. So how do we relate to the imprecatory psalms? The first thing we need to recognize when we read imprecatory psalms is to reflect soberly on the fact that God is just. God is just. He is righteous. He is holy. He does not declare the guilty innocent or the innocent guilty. He loves actual, true justice. And when God brings his wrath, his judgment against sin and wickedness, he destroys his enemies. And this glorifies God. This honors God. This is something that we worship God for. And so when we deal with this tension between Jesus' command that we love our enemies and pray for our enemies, but then we see the Psalms cursing his enemies. How do we handle this? We just recognize that it's in God's hands to judge, and we can pray that way, but then at the same time embrace the mercy that's been shown to us and desire to see that same mercy expressed to our enemies. David does this in Psalm 35, which is an imprecatory psalm. He says, Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me things I don't know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother, as one who laments his mother. I bowed down in mourning. And so we can pray imprecatory cries when we're suffering from enemies, and yet we never carry them out. We can pray in an imprecatory manner. We can't act in an imprecatory manner. Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. I think it's really important for us to understand the justice of God. He will bring just retribution. He will right every single wrong. And it will be according to his wrath, unless he shows his mercy through Christ. And that is good and fitting. If we don't understand this and believe it and trust it, you know what the result's going to be for us? Bitterness and unforgiveness. Vindictiveness. If we don't absolutely 100% believe that God will right every wrong, that whenever we are uh, wronged, sinned against, oppressed, injured, that God has got that and he will bring it to an account? If we don't understand that, we are not going to turn the other cheek. We're going to exact a pound of flesh. We will be bitter. We will be unforgiving if we don't understand that God is indeed just. Of course, we would be objects of God's wrath if it weren't for the mercy of God and the death of Christ. And because of his death, because God can right wrongs through that substitutionary death, we have received mercy. And on that basis, we pray, even for our enemies, that they would cease being our enemies, that they would repent, become brothers and sisters. That's what we really would like to have. But in the meantime, God, answer them for their deeds. We can pray that way. We need to pray that way, and we need to trust God with that. Lastly, um, as modern Americans, uh, living in a place where, where religious freedom is threatened but still intact, we don't really suffer the kind of persecution that our brothers and sisters throughout the world endure. If you were a Christian in Sudan or India or China, you would probably not have nearly as much trouble with an imprecatory psalm as we do. And so uh, we can sing these psalms in solidarity with our brothers and sisters who are suffering throughout the world. 
All five of these kinds of psalms are songs that God means for us to, to shape our souls, to, be, to, to meet us in our life, to direct us to him, whether we are happy and we need to praise, whether we are suffering and we need to cry out, whether we have been delivered and need to thank him, whether we uh, are in the midst but, uh, of suffering but are clinging desperately to him, or whether we are facing enemies who won't relent, we have these songs. I am deeply grateful that in our church we sing and chant and, and recite these psalms together every week in worship. It is good that we keep the psalms at the very tip of our tongue so that we have them ready to celebrate every joy, to accompany every tear. To that end, I, I hope that this survey has helped you to become more familiar with the book as a whole and its features and details, that you'll feel more at home in this book, that you'll be able to navigate through it and enter into it, and that as a, as a church, we will continue to use these psalms in, psalms in every season of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for, the, uh, for a deep and rich songbook that you've given to your church. Oh Lord, keep and preserve our practice of singing and reciting the psalms. Deepen our faith, refine our worship as we sing your songs and worship according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.